This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. Governor Ned Lamont is in a tough spot. This week, he had a group of medical professionals send him a letter saying the way to stop the spike in hospital admissions due to COVID-19 is to close businesses like indoor restaurants and gyms. Meanwhile, the business owners who run those restaurants and gyms are asking for looser restrictions so they can just stay afloat during an economic collapse. He's got parents calling him because their kids can't go to school to learn or play sports, and teachers calling because they feel they're teaching in classroom conditions that are unsafe. Everyone wants to be at the front of the line when vaccines start to roll into the state by the end of the year. And aside from CDC guidance, Lamont is not really getting that much help from Washington, where lawmakers continue to dicker over an aid package. That was the backdrop for our Mirror conversation this week. We talked with Lamont over Zoom with an audience of nearly 300 Mirror readers, many of whom had given me questions to ask. And I started by asking Lamont about the recent rise in Connecticut's infection rate and hospitalizations which swelled to over a thousand, raising alarms for many people in the medical community. Yeah, Connecticut had one of the lowest infection rates in the country uh, up until five weeks ago. And things have been ticking up in Connecticut throughout our region and uh, sadly throughout our country. And uh, it wasn't totally unexpected. Um, We knew from 1918, we knew from all the models that um, Come the flu season, come October, November, December, uh, we expected a tick up. Our universities plan to close down at Thanksgiving and not come back until, uh, you know, end of January, February. But but here we are. And this is going to be a pretty tough month. Um, as you point out, we had university kids coming and going that, you know, stirred things up. Uh, now we've got Thanksgiving. So I think we're going to watch carefully over the next, uh, you know, two plus weeks to see where the trend lines are. And uh, that will be determinative. At least the good news is um, a week from Monday, we get our first um, 20,000 of vaccines from uh, Pfizer, really focused on our uh, first responders, um, nurses and docs. And hopefully that's the beginning of a turn. Yeah, I wanna get back to those vaccines and how they'll be distributed and how the additional vaccines as they as they finally get to us will be distributed. But But when you're looking at these numbers, especially with the Christmas holidays just coming out of Thanksgiving, what is it you're looking at? Are you looking at the infection rate? Are you looking at the number of infections, the hospitalizations? What are the the key indicators that you and your team are looking at every day to make the determinations you're making? Well, the most important thing is, I think, um, the capacity in our hospitals. And uh, I I met with a lot of uh, the docs uh, via Zoom um, yesterday. Uh, They're getting stressed. There's no question about it. And last time around, uh, two things were different in the spring when we got hit pretty hard. One, it was hit in just a part of the state, you know, the southern part of the state, so we could bring in the cavalry and reinforcements and nurses and PPE from um, the northern part of the state. And then the tables turned a little while later. Not this time. This time, uh, the COVID spread is hitting every hospital in every region, um, you know, pretty much at the same time. And, And last time... Uh, the hospitals were able to, not able, a lot of people put off elective surgery, of uh, sometimes important surgeries, said, let's not do it now. That opened up a lot of capacity in our hospitals. This time around, six months later, they're still catching up on a lot of that deferred elective surgery. So we have to watch this carefully. There's some stress in the healthcare system. 
you, you talked with a group of doctors and a, a large contingent of doctors had sent you a letter saying essentially that in order to flatten the curve, to make sure that we don't overwhelm ICUs, we need to think about closing down gyms and closing down indoor dining. What did you tell them? I told them, I want to, A, I want to do things that make a real difference. Uh, I told them that, um, you know, for every action, there's a reaction that, uh, you know, I don't govern by fiat. You've got to convince people to do the right thing. It's those informal social interactions, which is where uh, most of the spread, um, overwhelmingly most of the spread is taking place. If you just close down the restaurants, does that mean um, everybody goes home and sits with a, a TV dinner on their lap by themselves? Or do they have a party or dinner somewhere else? Do they drive to New York or Massachusetts to grab a steak and a, um, a glass of uh, wine? So you got to think about what the ramifications are. Will it make a difference? Uh, that said, look, I, I look at Europe. Uh, at one point, they had to close everything down for a period of time. Yeah, and, and we came pretty close to that earlier this year. We were relatively closed down. When a group of medical professionals comes to you and says, these are the places that we see the biggest problems, the biggest possibilities, gyms, indoor dining, some of the things that you've said that you want to keep open, it does sound as though they've got some pretty good data that suggests that those are the problem points. I think intuitively you would say, look, I think... Uh Dining at a restaurant, you have to take off the mask to eat. That seems uh, risky. Uh, you know, that said, with our track and trace programs, we're following this carefully. The restaurant guys have put up plexiglass. They've been very serious about doing this in an appropriate way, trying to steer people outside as much as they can. I get it. It's December. It's not as easy as it was. Um, you know, the gyms, A, it's really important, the mental health. I, I hear that everywhere I go. But also, there are 25% capacity. You've got to wear a mask. If you, the question is, can you operate? If you operate cautiously, can you do it safely? Where do you see most of the infections coming from? You, you talked about social interactions, but those are incredibly hard to trace. You know, interactions between family members, maybe between casual acquaintances. How do you track that? And how do you know that that's where most of the infections are coming from right now in the state? Our track and trace, talking to Massachusetts, there's doing the same thing, Cuomo down in New York, where they see things going on. It's not um, playing hockey. It's the carpool to the rink. It's in the locker room. It's probably not necessarily in the church, but it's outside the church when you let your guard down and you um, hug a good friend of a friend and assume that uh, since they're, uh, they know each other, it must be okay. It's not necessarily even in that restaurant or that gym, uh, more likely that informal social gathering where a couple of friends come in and they know somebody else and you let your guard down. I think that's where we're finding the greatest risk. So really it's personal behavior that makes the biggest difference in terms of turning turning the corner. Of course, a lot of the questions that you've gotten are from those very unhappy hockey moms and dads and, and kids who want to play winter sports. And I've seen what you've told them. But again, if, if playing hockey isn't necessarily the problem, can you get more kids playing athletics or are we going to continue to, to limit winter sports into spring sports? No, we, we've said we wanted to put off the start of winter sports till January 19th. Uh, why January 19th? I think our schools are coming back at that point. I think we'll have more vaccines out there at that point. I think we can do it safely. Uh, but um, 
what, what we found was, look, I'm doing everything I can to keep the schools open. Connecticut is more likely to have its uh, schools open full time than just about any state in the Northeast. And we found there was some risk. You could pick it up uh, in basketball or some other sports. Then you bring it into your seventh grade class. Then we find out there's an infection. Then the teacher has to quarantine for two weeks and pretty soon the uh, school is closing. I will tell you that um, uh, a kid named Max, he was 10 years old. He sent me an orange hockey puck and he said, you gotta let me play, I really need it. And I sent him a video on tweet the other day and I got dozens of orange hockey pucks today. <laughs> Just uh, kids, uh, I know what you're going through. I know how hard this is. Um, I hope your parents explain we're doing this so that uh, you will be able to play hockey, we'll be able to be in school. And I want to get back to education in just a little bit, but you mentioned the vaccines that you're going to be getting. The first wave of these vaccines coming, about 20,000 at first, maybe 40,000 doses in total if you get them from both of these uh, companies that are developing the vaccines by the end of this year. All right, that seems like a, a pretty big number, but given the number of healthcare professionals, given the number of people at risk, it's very, very small. How do you prioritize who gets them first? Um, the CDC has sent out some guidelines and uh, Deirdre Gifford, our public health um, uh, commissioner and um, Reg Eadie runs Trinity. They put together a group. It sounds to me like they're gonna come to the conclusion, we're gonna make this uh, at our press briefing tomorrow, that uh, healthcare professionals, doctors and nurses, frontline, we gotta have you on the battlefield. Secondly, um, elderly, frail elderly, and um, those in nursing homes. You, A, those are the ones most likely to suffer complications and fatalities. It's the main thing to do. They're also the ones most likely to go to a hospital. So if you worry about capacity in hospitals, taking care of your seniors is the right thing to do and also keeps your hospitals uh, more open. So taking care of people who work in nursing homes as well as nursing home residents? That's right and taking care of all sorts of doctors and other professionals who are working in hospitals. But that cuts into just a very small number. I've seen numbers like 250 or 270,000 healthcare professionals in the entire state. So you would be starting by giving maybe half of those doses to public health professionals, maybe half to seniors. And that still leaves an awful lot of public health professionals who are seeing the public right now who are unvaccinated for some time. I think we are going to see... uh, 100 million doses coming our way over the next, uh, you know, six plus months. I think they're ramping this up. You mentioned, uh, you know, Moderna and Pfizer uh, coming out of the box pretty fast. Uh, AstraZeneca coming up soon thereafter. I'd like to think that uh, we will be ramping up that capacity and have general um, opportunity for people to be vaccinated this spring. Is there anything else that you're planning to do to help alleviate the problem in nursing homes specifically? There's vaccines, certainly, but is there any other plan to try to make nursing homes safer right now? Well, again, we've set up the, the COVID-only nursing homes for folks who are coming back and, and recovering. Uh, sadly, we're, we're limiting visitations again. I know that was just heartbreaking for families. Um, but as you can imagine, with those folks coming in and out of the nursing home that tend to a uh, often carry the virus with them, testing on a weekly basis, testing the nurses in particular, because sometimes they would work at multiple nursing homes. And you can imagine that's a chain reaction. Governor, as we talk about these vaccines, not just in this next month or so, but down the line, how do you plan to get them to people? 
a lot of questions that have come to me are really just of confusion. You know, how will I actually get a vaccine? And some of that stems from people who've tried pretty hard to get tested in the state. Some people have found ways to get tested multiple times for COVID. Some people have had to wait in very, very long lines and have run into any number of different problems. And it makes many people in the state feel like it's going to be real chaos when everyone's looking for a vaccine and it's going to be hard to figure out how to get one. So what's the plan for getting vaccines distributed once we start to ramp up the number that comes to the state? All right. So we got a Walgreens and CVS. We got a contract with them. They'll we're drop shipping the vaccines to the nursing homes. They will take the lead there. They'll be responsible for refrigeration. Uh, when it comes to the hospitals, probably a little bit easier. That's what they do. They do vaccines at hospitals. They've got the refrigeration. You know, they will manage that. So for this first tranche for the next, uh, you know, 20, 30 days, I think you see how that's rolling out. And then from there, uh, John, um, we're working with all the pharmacies. We're doing everything we can to make it easy to get vac- uh, vaccinated. No cost to get vaccinated. Uh, the feds kindly are preventing, the, presenting, getting us the vaccine at no cost getting the refrigeration and everything to us, maybe some administrative work to, in order to get that shot done. We're looking for volunteers, um, folks that can uh, help us when it comes to the uh, vaccinations. It's called Step Up Connecticut. Uh, we pay a little bit um, and uh, we need you to help administer so that if John Dankowski gets a Moderna uh, test on uh, January 7th, we know it's three weeks later, we know it's Moderna and we know when it's time for him to get vaccinated a second time we got to work hard to make sure that process works. Just so that everyone understands, each state really has to come up with this plan on their own, right? I mean, there's no federal government oversight that says, here's how you're going to distribute vaccines. This is the Connecticut plan. I don't know. The Rhode Island plan is going to be different, right? The Massachusetts plan will be different. Yeah. Uh, they're getting better. They were a little haphazard for the first six months. Um coming out of Washington. Um, We're going to get pretty clear guidance from CDC. I explained to you how they're sort of prioritizing. You're absolutely right, John. It's up to us to say uh, we want to follow your guidance or not. My instinct is we'll be following the guidance. It seems pretty responsible so far. A number of people have wanted me to ask you about teachers getting the vaccine. If we want to keep schools open, at least partially open, should teachers be in the first wave of people who get vaccinated? Uh, they should be in a very early wave. Look, they are first responders like um, like cops and firemen and food service workers, all those folks who are constantly interfacing with the public. They, they're not like us, John. We just can't Zoom from a distance. They're, they're right there on the front lines. So uh, we're, we're making sure that they'll get priority in terms of those vaccinations. Advocates for the incarcerated have said that that group of people and the people who work with them in facilities around the state are probably the most at risk because of the tight conditions, because of the the very easy spread of the disease. Will you make it a priority to get vaccinations to people who work within incarceration facilities and the incarcerated? Yeah, I think so. I, I can't make everybody a priority, then nobody's a priority. But you're right, that's a congregate setting. In congregate settings, uh, there can be a wildfire there. I will say for um, the incarcerated, they had one of the lowest infection rates, um, you know, in the country for most of the summer. So I felt really good about that. We did de-densify, as they say, some of those that were uh, lowest, um, you know, risk. We were able to get them out of there. So there is some extra capacity. 
but it is ticking up again uh, with those facilities just like it is around the state. Yeah, and obviously, if everyone's a priority, nobody's a priority. But th- there have been a number of studies that look at the the different impacts you'd have depending on how you would distribute a vaccine. For instance, if you go in very early and say, we want to get all the oldest and the frailest vaccinated, that probably will save the most lives. But it might not necessarily slow the rate of infection the most quickly. Other states, other countries around the world may look at it differently and say, all the first responders should get it. And then we can start to worry about getting people at different age uh, classifications. The thing about incarcerated people is there's no place else really to, to go and it can spread like wildfire. I guess I just wonder about that because it, it is a really at-risk group. It's a really at-risk group. Um, but again, with um, disinfecting and mass and separation, we've been done a pretty good job there. You know, in my mind, but look, let, let's wait to hear what Deirdre and Reg say. But my instinct is right now, I'm focused on the hospitals, make sure we have enough capacity, beds, nurses, docs, to take care of people in need. That means I get them vaccinated. I get those elderly folks who are most likely at risk and to go to the hospital. I think uh, that's going to be our priority for the first probably 30 days. You talked about some of the businesses that have been impacted, especially restaurants. We've heard numbers of 600 or more restaurants in the state that are, are closing for good. They've had to probably adapt what they do more than just about any other business. What can you tell restaurant owners right now moving forward as they go into a season where there's no more outdoor dining, there's hardly any chance for them to be able to come close to making the dollars that they've made in previous years. How do you help the restaurants in the state? One, by keeping them open. Um, you know, everybody is lined up, um, you know, restaurants, hospitals, bars, event planners, hotels. Everybody's looking for um, a bailout, a grant, some help. And, um, you know, to tell you the truth, uh, they should get it. Uh, but the state of Connecticut can't do it. If I bail out everybody, who bails out the state of Connecticut? And um, I, I do look at Europe, though, for example. They closed down their restaurants, and the federal government there said, and we're going to pay you, I think it was 75% of your revenues for the next three months until you open up again. So they made it possible for them to make that decision. We're not there, but it's not totally financial either. I think we can operate these things safely. I think uh, restaurants are making an extra effort to be able to do that. And my advice to you is uh, support your favorite restaurant. You don't necessarily have to go there for dinner. Get something, pick up and bring it home. That would be a great thing for a local uh, merchant. You, you recently increased the possible fines for businesses that break pandemic protocols to $10,000, which is probably just aimed at some very egregious actors, but it's been seen by a lot of people as, as fairly punitive. Why that particular number? Because I talked to a lot of the um, you know mayors and public health at the local level. They're the uh, folks enforcing this, and uh, they said a couple of things. Look, for the smaller businesses, we know them. They're part of our Chamber of Commerce. We go in there and say, Bob, this is crowded or uh, Mary, there's too many people not wearing a mask. If they disregard us, maybe we give them a small fine of 100 bucks on the mask. But if it's one of those big box retailers, we don't know them as well. Maybe our um, public health officials have warned them a couple of times. All right, maybe they deserve a $10,000 fine if they're disregarding the rules. You know, I just got one one question coming in from Ellen here. It says uh, she's a physician. She's cared for COVID patients. Um, 
We put our lives in the line going into work. Why haven't you closed down non-essential businesses and indoor dining? You are simply wrong that spread isn't happening in restaurants. And I, obviously, I understand that you're you're not saying that there's not spread happening in restaurants, but this really is the tension here. You want to keep businesses open because it might be the only way that they can stay open long term. But as long as non-essential businesses are staying open, there is going to be some spread and it's going to put pressure on the medical community. And there's an awful lot of people who say, you know, my kid can't go to school, but you can still dine in a restaurant. That's got to be really the central tension you're dealing with right now, isn't it, Governor? Yeah, I mean, the Fauci said, uh, close the bars and open the schools. And we've got some places that have done just the opposite. Um, I, look, I'm doing everything I can to keep our schools open. There's no question about it. I want to keep... Um, I'd like to keep the heart of our economy going as long as we can do it safely. I'll be blunt. I'm talking to Cuomo. I'm talking to Baker. I'm talking to our regional governors because, look, if I shut down restaurants and everybody else says, let the show go on, it has a lot less impact and meaning. So if we do something, we'd probably do it together. But that's not happening right now. Yeah, what would trigger that? If, if you've been talking about it, is there some trigger that says now is the time for these states in this region to get together and actually say, we're going to shut things down as a group? Yeah, again, I think uh, once you find if things are getting overwhelmed, the hospitals are overwhelmed and we can't keep up with the need. You saw that in Italy. You saw that in parts of New York City. Um, it, it can happen. It hadn't happened in Connecticut yet, but we're watching it. So obviously... You know, Connecticut can't pay for all of the needs that people have. We're waiting for some money to come from the federal government. Some of the most recent plans that have been floated in Washington, a bipartisan plan would you know, be giving a $300 check for unemployed. Who knows if that's ever going to get passed out of Washington. But there's other money out of that plan that would be coming to the states. What would you prescribe to Washington to actually come to a state like Connecticut that would help you, aside from just a really big load of money? But like, what specifically would help right now in order to help you get the money to the people who need it? Yeah, they are uh, AWOL, and it's uh, it's getting dangerous. Uh, number one, uh, they, we had a very good CARES Act money. It was set to expire on December 31st. That's a little over three weeks away. I've got testing. I've got vaccinations. I've got to administer that. That's going to require real resources. Thankfully, Connecticut has a rainy day fund, but a lot of our other governors are scrambling. What do you do? Do you stop until the federal government comes in? Do you take money from uh, education? Uh, they've got to step up there. Number two, I would think a priority would be another round of what they called PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. Ways that um, you can, like I was mentioning in Germany, these businesses, um, if they have to slow down a lot or even stop for a period of time, they're compensated. People stay employed. You keep them, uh, you know, on the payroll for a period of time. Those would be two big priorities uh, for me. Is there any way that Connecticut can, though, because you have a rainy day fund, help in some direct way now? If, if we're going to wait for Washington for another couple months, which we very well might, Governor, does Connecticut step in and say, we have to provide some of this relief on our own? Yeah, I'm talking to the you know lawyers and uh, Melissa McCaw about that right now. I mean, again, my, my authority is within public health. That's where um, the people have kindly given me a little bit of discretion there. So my focus would be on vaccinations and testing. Make sure does that does not slow down one bit while we wait for the U.S. Senate to make up their mind. But what about direct 
of funds to help people, uh, expanded unemployment benefits, something that goes directly to businesses, something that expands grant opportunities for, for businesses as well that comes from the state coffers? Um, I got to be careful there. I mean, obviously, we sent out $5,000 checks to the 10,000 small businesses they needed. We had a, a variety of interim loans. We just gave $10 million to our not-for-profits and cultural centers because they've been shut down. But um, we don't have the wherewithal to bail out every single business in the state of Connecticut. Do you think that those $5,000 checks that went out are going to have the necessary impact from what i understand they were aimed at businesses that had already had a pretty hard time during this year and five thousand dollars for some businesses i and i hate to say it this way governor but it might just be throwing money at a business that is not going to survive through all of this and it's not enough to really help them pull completely out of it but it is five thousand dollars that the state is is sending away do you do you feel like that's going to have the desired impact Look, I didn't solve for world peace, but I can tell you these are very small companies, uh, 5, 10, 15 people. They weren't at the front of the line when it came to the big PPP programs administered by the federal government. And if it allows uh, a few of these people to pay the rent and keep the electric on for a couple of extra months, hopefully we're turning a corner in January and they'll be there to uh, fight another day. We got a couple questions coming in about what's one of the looming crises that that you're facing here, and it has to do with evictions. So many people can't make rent right now. I know that your administration has made some uh, rent relief possible, but this entire problem is going on far beyond the the $40 million that you've been able to put into this. How do you think about this problem of evictions, uh, and all the other people who can't make their mortgages because of what's happening with COVID. What does the state do about that? Well, um, first of all, we did put, um, you know, tens of millions of dollars in. And unlike, I may have been too complicated on this, John, but rather than just, you know, hand that out as grants and say, please uh, pay the landlord, what we said was, here's some money. Landlords can contact us. Tenants can contact us. We tried to put together an arrangement We'll provide 50% if you uh, keep this person in their home for at least the next uh, six months. That requires some negotiation, but I thought that was a, a, a more long-term and permanent solution uh, than otherwise. Um, secondly, I got to keep people employed. I got to keep them able to keep working, collecting a paycheck so they can um, you know, continue to stay in their homes. Uh, we cannot have a mass eviction crisis. And frankly, um, if it gets bigger, we're going to need the federal government again to step up. It's too big for any state just to do it by themselves. Yeah, it really is. I mean, and that's the thing. Your your plan, w- whether it was complicated or not, it provided assistance, needed assistance for, for this six months. And now this is a, a crisis that is extending far beyond that. It's going to take tens of millions more dollars. You're saying that this may be a problem for the federal government to step in in order to provide some sort of backstop. Look, it'd be a lot more complete. But in the meantime, Connecticut's put the resources up and um, our Department of Housing is doing the negotiations as best we can to make sure people can stay in their homes. People have a right to stay in their homes. We need them to stay in their homes. I can't have homeless. You can't have homeless people, especially during a pandemic where they're infected, infecting others. We are in this together. And that starts with housing. I want to get back to the, the levers that the state can pull right now obviously you don't want to draw down this rainy day fund, this uh, 
couple billion dollars that you have in the bank right now because you're also facing budget deficits at the state level. There's a lot of other things that you need to do. Right now, how are you thinking about these budget reserves and the best ways to use them? You've been very protective of them to this point, and I think it's all it's fair to say it is now a rainy day in Connecticut. So what do we do with this? What's what's your plan to, to spend this money in the wisest way possible? Well, as you know, um, the feds helped us out with COVID-related expenses up till December 31st. Then it's a jump ball. What they did not do is say, we're not going to help you out with uh, revenues you didn't get. So as you can imagine, our sales tax, our income tax, other tax revenues are down quite a bit. That was part of the purpose of a rainy day fund. We didn't want every time there was that type of a revenue shortfall, that type of recession, you had to jack up taxes or slash social services. We wanted to steady that out. So thank God we didn't spend away the rainy day fund last year. There are some ideas in that direction. We have husband of those reserves. So for the near term, public health, for the medium term, make sure we don't have to slash services and raise taxes. That's Governor Ned Lamont from our special Connecticut Mirror conversation this week. In part two, we'll dig into that question of taxes and whether we'll need to raise them to help the state get through the COVID economic collapse. We'll also talk about what's happening with schools and some of his other priorities heading into the next legislative session. You can listen for that on our show on Monday. Our event was produced by Kyle Constable. Thanks to Bruce Potterman, Beth Hamilton, Mark Pazniokas, Keith Thaniff, Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, Kellen Lyons, and Steve Busmeyer for their help. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you soon.